Good morning. Good to, good to see you all. Uh, well, today is week two in our present series, Mark My Words. And uh, we're journey, journeying together through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we are moving at some pace. We are studying one chapter every week. We're doing eight chapters before Christmas and then another eight into the, uh, from the new year onwards, uh, chapters 9 through to 16. And since uh, each chapter has uh, a lot of information, a lot of detail, we're unable to do a, an in-depth study uh, on a Sunday in the time that's allotted to us. So what we're asking you to do is to prayerfully read, study, reflect, make notes uh, on the, the chapter each week, and then come along to your life groups uh, midweek with full hearts and uh, a readiness to talk about what the Lord is showing to you personally and what the Lord is revealing to you through Sunday teaching. If you don't belong to a life group, then have a chat with Dan or me afterwards and um, we'll try and get you sorted. If you can't attend a life group for whatever reason, and some people can't for very, very good reasons, whether it's family commitments or work schedules or some other valid reason, then maybe, just maybe you would like to meet with another friend um, from the church, perhaps a family member, and just to work through this material chapter by chapter. That would be a really, really good thing to do. Well, Dan informed us uh, last Sunday that the Gospel of Mark is written by a guy called John Mark. And John Mark was a young associate of Peter, Paul and Barnabas. He was actually a, a cousin of Barnabas. And Mark accurately wrote down Peter's account of the life of Jesus. It's generally believed that Mark was the first gospel that was written and that Matthew and Luke borrowed Mark's account with other sources to form their, their gospel accounts. Mark was written largely to a non-Jewish readership, possibly, probably to Christians in Rome who were being persecuted for their trust in Jesus. And as we work through the gospel of Mark, we will see for ourselves that Mark has a special focus on persecution and martyrdom. And these were indeed terrible days for Christians, Christians who were required to count the cost of following Jesus. And around this time of um, Mark's writing, as Dan told us last week, the Roman emperor was Nero. Now, Nero was a really nasty piece of work. He was a psychopath, if there ever was one. And he accused the Christians for, creating, for uh, starting, causing the great fire in Rome in AD 64. That killed over 1,000 Roman people. And 10 of the 14 districts of Rome were razed to the ground in just six days. Tacitus, a Roman historian, believed that Nero himself was responsible for this fire because he wanted to just clear the space so that he could build his golden palace, which was about 300 acres, right in the centre of the city. Tacitus, the historian, also says that no one really believed that the Christians were responsible for this fire, but no one was prepared to defend them against such a tyrannical and cruel uh, madman as Nero. Nero did terrible things, covered Christians in... Um, animal skins and they were torn apart by the dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Still others were set on fire to light up Nero's gardens. 
<laughs> it wasn't just Nero, but it was hard being a Christian in those days. Life was hard anyway. Jewish Christians would have been ostracized by their families uh, who viewed them as blasphemers and traitors to Judaism in following this Jesus, this Jesus, the so-called Messiah. Roman colleagues and family members would have ridiculed them for believing in such nonsense as this. After all, who had ever such a, heard such a tale? A God who had been born of a virgin, who lived a life of poverty, who was hung on a cross to die? Surely that's, that's nonsense in anyone's language. Mark is written to these believers who are in need of an injection of hope because life was so difficult. They needed some encouragement. They needed some good news in the midst of all of their turmoil and suffering. And that's really where Mark starts his gospel. Again, as we looked last week, we're just doing a quick overview because I know that some of you were not around uh, last week, some of you haven't met this week. So just quickly recapping uh, where Dan was at last week. The gospel starts there in verse 1 of chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel, euangelion in the Greek, means good news. And the word was often used for the official announcement where the son of an emperor had been born. But Mark uses this word good news, gospel, euangelion, not for the announcement of the son of an emperor being born, but rather for the son of God. In Old Testament times, both angels and Jews, they were sometimes called the son of, sons of God, but to call one man the son of God was absolutely unique. The concept of a son in the ancient world went beyond uh, identifying who your father was, but to be a son of someone indicated that you were the best reflection of your father. And Jesus is referred to here as the Son of God. He is the best reflection of what God is like, the reflection of the invisible God. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, The Son is the radiance of, the, of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. And throughout his gospel, Mark presents Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. Now, Christ and Messiah are synonyms. Uh, Christ is the Greek term, Messiah is the Hebrew term for God's anointed one. And Mark declares that this Jesus that he is presenting is the one with supreme authority over the devil and demons, and sickness, and death, and Jewish laws, and the temple. And that Jesus is not just simply a miracle worker, but he is one who is in charge. He is the one who is in control. And Mark is hoping that his readers will recognize Jesus' divinity. And when they do so, they will then wholeheartedly follow him and obey him. Mark covers so much ground in that first chapter. Have you read it this week? Come on, you should, all should have read it. Okay, good, good. And the ground that he covers is, is, is just so much. He describes Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus is identified as being superior to John the Baptist, who himself was a significant prophet. Jesus 
also has the authority to baptize with the Holy Spirit. No one has ever done that before. Breaking new ground here. Jesus is affirmed at his baptism by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who initiates and proclaims this message of the kingdom of God. And when people listen to him, they are listening to one who has authority, not just like the other religious leaders. And Jesus chooses his disciples to follow him. And they follow him immediately, again demonstrating his authority. That was very unusual in those days. You know, a, 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 a disciple would choose a rabbi, much, I suppose, like in our day when a student would choose a university, not the other way around. And then we read in chapter 1 of Jesus remo removing a demon with ease. Be quiet, he says. Come out. And this impure spirit could do nothing other than obey. Jesus also shows that he has authority over sickness when he cleanses the leper. Jesus has real power. That's the message of chapter 1 so far. Real authority. As uh, Dr. Keith Warrington puts it so brilliantly, Jesus is a friend with muscles. I like that. So that's a quick recap where we've been so far. So let's move on to chapter 2 today. And uh, we're going to do this uh, each week. We're going to watch uh, a Luma project video on the Gospel of Mark taken from the New International Version of the Bible. And it's available for you as well on version. How many of you have got version on your smartphones or on your tablets? If you haven't, get it. It's free and it's absolutely brilliant. And all the videos that we're going to be showing here on Sunday mornings are from this. So sit back and listen to, or if you've got your Bibles as well, open your Bibles, um, Mark chapter 2. When Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. By digging through, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, go home.
took his man and walked out in full view of the wall. <coughs> this amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, We've never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Mark didn't write in chapters and verses that we have in our Bibles today. They were added to our Bibles in the 16th century. So we mustn't think that just because we are starting a new chapter in chapter 2 that Mark is on some different subject here. No, not at all. It's a continuation of the emphasis of chapter 1. And Mark is continuing here to reveal the supreme authority of Jesus, which in result um, uh, which results in conflict with the religious leaders of the day. You see, Jesus didn't fit neatly into their boxes. And Jesus doesn't fit neatly into our boxes either. And this chapter starts with an amazing story of a paralysed man and his four mates. And uh, the, there were so many people in the house listening to Jesus that they couldn't get through the door. No problem. They had a contingency. There was a plan B. Go onto the roof via external stairway. Then remove roof. Then lower one paralyzed friend into a crowded room. Over the years, I've been in uh, meetings where the sermon was in interrupted in a range of ways. 
including screaming babies, mobile phones ringing, one person had a heart attack uh, and subsequently died. And then there was a guy, a guy called Graham. Graham fell fast asleep. That wasn't a problem in itself. The, it only became a problem when he started snoring. <laughs> and he started snoring rather loudly, very loudly in fact. It was so loud that it caused the guy sitting next to him, Roy, to leave the room crying with laughter with a handkerchief stuffed in his mouth. <laughs> but you've got to say, removing a roof is quite an unusual way to interrupt a sermon. And I'm sure that the owner of the house wasn't too chuffed either. But Jesus said to this guy on the mat, your sons, your sin is, are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Whoa, hang on a second, Jesus. What are you saying there? What are you talking about, Jesus? This guy has come in for healing. And you're talking about forgiveness. What, what, what's going on here? What's the connection? Jesus, surely you're not suggesting that the reason that this guy is paralyzed as he, as he is is because of his sin, are you? That's not particularly PC. What are you saying, Jesus? Well, Jesus wasn't suggesting that for a moment, as we'll see in a moment. But this idea was something which was um, a position that many Jewish people held in those days. Let's leave Mark's Gospel for a moment and let's jump into John's Gospel. In John's Gospel, there's a wonderful story of a man who had been born blind. The disciples met this guy and rather callously in his presence asked Jesus, they, he said, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it, was it this guy, this, this man here? Or was it his parents that he was born blind? Jesus explained to us this phenomenon. And you've got to really cringe at their lack of diplomacy, haven't you? I wonder if the guy said something to them like, um, hello, I'm in the room, you know. And John just redacted that from the final version of his gospel. Read the story for yourself. It's a story found in John chapter 9. This guy, blind from birth. He was certainly a guy who could handle himself. It's a great story. Jesus healed him. And then the religious leaders came and inter interrogated him about who's this Jesus who just healed you? And he's playing along with them. And they ask him on three occasions, who, was it? who, who is this guy? And his last answer is just brilliant. There's more than a hint of sarcasm in it. It seems as if he was saying there, you guys, you sound pretty interested in Jesus. You're not wanting to become his followers too, are you? And when I read that, I sort of love that kind of mocking humor. So I wonder what this guy thought when his, the disciples were having a conversation about the cause of his blindness. Sadly, it appears that they, the disciples, only saw this man as an object for theological discussion. And Jesus answered them, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Let's come back to Mark's Gospel. So why does Mark here seem to link sin and disablement in this way, saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Well, we are given a clue to that in the next couple of verses. In verse 6, Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there, 
thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, in fairness to these guys, their reasoning was pretty good. They arrived at the place that Jesus wanted them to arrive at. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They got that point right. And Jesus responded, not to anything they said, but what they were thinking. Verse 8. Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus told the guy on the mat, this guy who had been paralyzed, to take up his mat and go home. And Jesus' reasoning went something like this. Which is easier? Is it easier to say that you're, uh, to to heal someone or to declare uh, that your sins are forgiven? Human beings, both the power to heal and the power to forgive are impossible. But with God, they're both possible. Incidentally, this conversation was taking place when this paralyzed man was still on his mat, paralyzed. One small detail I know, and one that I'd not seen ever before. I've read this story hundreds of times, and I was reading it again this week, and I saw this for the very first time. When this conversation was going on with Jesus and the religious leaders, the guy was paralyzed on his mat. He was there. And I wonder what was going through his mind when this conversation was going on. Is this guy going to heal me or not? Am I going to be leaving through the front door on my own two feet, or on this stretcher and at that point he hadn't been healed but it revealed something about the self-awareness of Jesus Jesus had such confidence in his own godness I know it's not a word but it should be in his own godness such divine awareness to speak to the religious leaders about the healing and forgiveness of sins as if the miracle had already happened. If this miracle of healing had taken place and then after the healing Jesus gave a theological lesson on his deity and his power to forgive sins that would have been one thing. But the lesson to these religious leaders came before the healing of the man which speaks to me profoundly of the self-awareness that Jesus had of his own godness or his own deity. Cambridge professor and author C.S. Lewis once wrote, We all understand how a man forgives offences against himself. You tread on my toe and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on who announces that he forgave you for treading on other men's toes and stealing other men's money? Yet that is what Jesus did. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws are broken and whose love is wounded by every sin. Now make no mistake about this. The religious leaders thought that Jesus was blaspheming. And if Jesus wasn't God, then absolutely he was blaspheming. There's no middle ground here. And Mark knows this. And he uses this story to once again make his Uh, make his case for the awesome 
authority that Jesus had, as Keith says, a, a friend with muscles. Moving on, the next story that Mark includes is this narrative of Jesus calling Levi. Levi was also called Matthew, and uh, he's thought of uh, as the author of Matthew's Gospel. Now, Matthew was a tax, tax collector, and as much as you and I might despise handing on your hard-earned cash to the Inland Revenue, tax collection in the Holy Land was a million times worse. The tax collectors were Jews, and they were tax collecting on behalf of the Romans, the enemy, those people who had invaded the land, made them pay extortionate amount of, of taxes, even though they were poor people. Many of the Jews employed to collect taxes for the Romans were viewed as traitors to their own people. Worse still, many of these tax collectors who took tax for the enemy also lined their own pockets with that tax, a little bit extra for themselves. And as a result, the religious re leaders of uh, Israel rejected them as Potential witnesses in courts excommunicated them from synagogues, treated them like outcasts. And uh, Jewish fathers would never allow their daughters to get married to a tax collector. But Jesus, as ever, didn't worry too much about popular opinion. He not only told uh, Matthew to come and follow him, but he also accepted an invitation to have dinner with Matthew and his tax collector friends who the religious Pharisees thought were, were, were just terrible sinners. The Pharisees, if you know anything about them, they had a whole range of uh, petty rules on how the Jews should uh, eat. You know, they had certain washings, ceremonial washings, that they wash their hands in particular ways and go through a whole range of um, tiresome processes, washing dishes and pots and pans and, and so forth. And these Pharisees came in and were utterly appalled, astounded that Jesus should be having uh, food with such unscrupulous, terrible people. And then Jesus declared, it's not the healthy that need a doctor but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but to sinners. But why does Mark include this story in his gospel? I'm glad you asked. I believe what Mark is saying here is that this is Jesus. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who I'm telling you about. He really, truly is good news. He's his own man. He doesn't conform to the standards and traditions of society or religion. He's a man of authority. He is different. He's not your average religious leader. He has a heart for those on the margins of society. And Mark continues by telling us that Jesus and his disciples were confronted by religious leaders and uh, sorry, uh, confronted by religious leaders about them not fasting. Now, the Jewish law told all Jews that they were to fast one day a year. That's not too bad, is it? You know, one day a year, you can manage that. Day of atonement, that's when they were to fast. However, by the day of Jesus, the ultra-pious Pharisees were fasting twice a week. 
every Tuesdays and Thursdays. And in stark contrast, Jesus and his disciples didn't follow these traditions. And people asked why. Jesus, why aren't you fasting like the others? And Jesus' answer at face value takes some understanding. It's a bit opaque, it's a bit confusing. Jesus says, you don't sew a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or pour new wine into new wineskins. It'll burst them. And I was scratching my head a little bit this week, wondering, what, what are you talking about there, Jesus? How on earth are you answering their questions? And this is what I believe Jesus is saying there. He is saying that the new and the old don't mix very well. That Jesus came not to patch up the old religion and the old forms of Jewish religion, but he came to introduce something brand new. Jesus teaches that his way, the way of the kingdom of God, is very different to the old way of just simply abiding by external laws. His way is the way of the Spirit, who writes God's commands on our hearts, and not the old way, where people are required to, list, uh, to follow a list of external commands and regulations that were written down. And Jesus speaks with a new authority here. His teaching is like new wine. And the structures of Judaism could never contain what Jesus was bringing. And next Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples were walking through a cornfield one Sabbath. And this happened. One Sabbath, Jesus was going to the grain field. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. So they were walking through the uh, the the, the, the cornfields on the Jewish Sabbath. And as they walked through, they ate some ears of corn. And the religious Pharisees observed them and accused them of doing something which was terribly unlawful for the Jews to do on the Sabbath. Now, the command to keep the Sabbath holy was included within the Ten Commandments. But what did that actually mean in practical terms? Well, each rabbi had a, a view on this, and the rabbis had a, a range of elaborate rituals for what they could do and what they couldn't do on the Sabbath. For example, on the Sabbath, a man could not carry something in his right hand or his left hand, or across his chest or on his shoulder, because that, if it was being carried, whatever it was, even if it was, if it was this remote, could not carry that on the Sabbath like that because it constituted work, so said many of the rabbis. 
Women were prevented from looking in a mirror on the Sabbath, just in case they saw a grey hair, and were tempted to pluck it out, which would have constituted work on the Sabbath. So those who observed Jesus and his disciples, believing that when they plucked corn from the, the fields, they were actually reaping, which was prohibited on the Sabbath, and then when they rubbed it together, that was threshing, which was also prohibited on the Sabbath. And then they blew the chaff away. They were winnowing, which was also forbidden on the Sabbath. I think that Jesus was actually very controlled when he responded to them. I would have told them, get a life. <laughs> but Jesus answered them by giving an example of King David, their hero who also did something which was supposedly forbidden on the Sabbath. And then Jesus instructed them with these words. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. <laughs> I smiled to myself when I read those words this week because I sort of see why Jesus got under their skin with responses like that. Incidentally, the term Son of Man is also a synonym of Messiah and Christ, God's anointed one. You see, to the religious Jews, this was an absolutely astounding claim by Jesus. And he cut across all of their traditions and declared to them what was quite a new and staggering concept. In effect, he was saying, you talk about the Sabbath. I'm in charge. I am Lord of the Sabbath. So why is Mark including this in his gospel in this chapter? He is saying, I believe, this Jesus that I am presenting to you, he is the one with all authority. He has authority over demons and disease. He has authority over rules and regulations. He has authority over people and powers. He has authority over sinners and salvation. And he forgives people who've not even said sorry. Who is this man? And Mark wanted his readers to be impressed with the awesome authority of Jesus so that when they experienced their own tribulations and trials, their problems and persecution, that they would be reminded that they have a friend with muscles, the one who is in control of every detail of our lives. And that's the place that I want to come to really in this morning's teaching, that that same Jesus, the Son of God, the Saviour of the world, is also the one who is fully in control of our lives too, that he knows us intimately, the hairs on our head are numbered by him, that when a sparrow falls to the ground, he knows of it, and he invites us to journey with him and to make him our priority. Paul wrote to the Colossians, that great letter that we have in our New Testament, and he spoke some amazing words, awesome words, about the power and the authority of Jesus. And I'd like to finish my talk this morning with these words. Guys, would you like to come back, please? We'll sing our final song in a moment. From Colossians chapter 1. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. We're going to sing a great song to finish our service this morning. You were the word at the beginning, one with God, the Lord Most High. Your hidden glory in creation now reveals in you our Christ. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing compares with this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. In the third verse, some great words. You have no rival. You have no equal. Now and forever, our God reigns. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the glory. Yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against. What a powerful name it is. The name of Jesus. Shall we stand? Let's worship our Jesus this morning. <laughs> 